rest of you, you're invited to take out your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we left off. If you need a Bible, raise your hand because we have Bibles. If you've got one, that's great. Also, take out your inside your bulletin. There's notes there for you to follow along. We're going to pick up on Ephesians chapter 5, ten and a half months. We've been going through Ephesians verse by verse, section by section. Now we're hitting the conclusion of the book, heavy on the practical application, chapters 5 and 6. <clears throat> Chapter 4, 5, and 6 are filled with all kinds of imperatives and commands and obligations that the Christians are expected to pursue, comply with, and fulfill because that's what God expects of His saints and the church. He said over 40 commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6 alone. So much for the Ten Commandments. But we... Got to a key verse last week, and that's Ephesians 5.18. Let's go ahead and look at it. Paul continues in his litany of commands, and he says to the Christians at Ephesus and to us today, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you got a negative command and a positive command. And I just consider Ephesians 5.18 to be one of the absolute key verses in the entire book of Ephesians, especially in the last three chapters, because as Christians, we're confronted with all these challenges to obey. God has a high standard. No, God has an impossible standard from a human perspective. How is it that we're supposed to fulfill the standard? Well, here's the key. Ephesians 5.18 unlocks everything. Christian, if you want to live an obedient life on a regular basis, you cannot do it in your own strength. You can only do it with God's strength, and that is through obedience to the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's why this verse right here, Ephesians 5.18, is so key. And that's why I wanted to take just that half of the verse, that one command. Christian, be filled with the Spirit. And really draw that out and find out what does that mean, first of all, and then how can we apply it to our life. So this morning I wanted to call this message on this verse, the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life. And I came up with six challenges for us, things we need to understand as Christians of what it means to have the Spirit-filled life or to be, quote, to be spirit-filled. What does it mean to be spirit-filled? Depending upon what denomination you come from or your background, you might answer that in very different ways or radically different ways. There's a lot of confusion on this simple command. Christian, be filled with the Spirit. One of the things I want to do this morning is just clearly explain what the Bible means by that phrase and hopefully get rid of some of the fog so we can apply this command to our life and be blessed by God as a result. And we're going to get to some of those differences, those uh, in-house, if you will, differences among believers, hopefully clear the air a bit. But let's go ahead and look at this wonderful command to be spirit-filled. Every Christian needs to be spirit-filled or filled with the Spirit. Um, and I just say in the introduction there, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul gives the key truth as to how Christians can successfully fulfill all of God's commands. And it can happen only when believers are living, spirit-filled lives. So let's start looking at these six principles I came up with based on this verse. Number one is the requirement to be spirit-filled. What is that? Well, it's our responsibility. It is our responsibility. Simple point, we can't overlook it. The key verb in verse 18 for this part of the phrase is be filled. It's really one word in your Greek text. Be filled. Leirao is the verb. You don't need to remember that, but that's the verb. And you know, 
Details about words, especially in the New Testament, are very important and they're significant. They mean things. They make a difference. That's why I think it's important that Bible teachers at some level should be familiar with biblical language, be it Hebrew, Greek, and just how language works. Vitally important. What is a tense? What is a mood? What is a case? Who cares? So on and so forth. Well, Jesus did. And the Apostle Paul did. When they taught, Jesus was the master teacher of the Old Testament. And he repeatedly said, one of his favorite say, sayings was, it is written. He was quoting or referring to the Old Testament. And then he would explain the meaning of the Old Testament, sometimes in detail. You engineers should love this, all that minutia of detail here in the Bay Area. There were times that Jesus gave meanings based on the legitimate meaning of a word, the root of a word, sometimes the very tense of a word. In the Gospels, Jesus came up with the entire doctrine of resurrection based on the tense of the verb to be. He did. In debating the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. He said, you don't understand the word of God. You don't understand the Old Testament. You don't understand the tense of the verb to be. I am. So Jesus was very precise with words, biblical language, their meanings, their tenses, the Apostle Paul did the same thing. So we need to be doing the same thing. And I think it's in Ephesians 5.18 that is also clear that these words are very specific in terms of what they mean and the very tense of this word, the mood of this word, the case of this word, all those things that have to do with English grammar that you forgot about from elementary and high school or that you missed because you were ditching class or whatever it is. <laughs> They're important. So I just want to try to emphasize those for you. Well, you know, they're, they're meaningful, they're practical, and they make a difference in even how we understand Bible verses. So that takes us back to point number one, the requirement to be spirit-filled. It is our responsibility. Point one, number one, I said, is for every Christian. This command is for every Christian. And what I mean, it, it is a command. That means it is an imperative in grammar. In grammar, this verb is an imperative. That means it is a command, as opposed to an indicative, which is simply a statement of truth. This is a command. It is an obligation. We are required to obey. When God gives us a command, He holds us accountable for obeying. And who is this command to? This is to all the Ephesians, every believer in the church. And it's for all saints of all time. This is an imperative, a command for every Christian for every age. Very important. And when God gives us a command, we need to obey. We are responsible for submitting. And you know what? We will even be held accountable to God for His commands someday. The Christian stands in uh, the next life before what is called the judgment seat of Christ, because He is the judge of all things. And it says that Christ will judge every believer. He will judge all of our works, even our thoughts, all of our words. And we will receive rewards based on Christ's judgment of everything we do. So with that reminder, all the more we need to heed God's command. So the command to be Spirit-filled is for every Christian. It should be a priority in your life. It should be a priority in my life. It's not just for a select few. And like I said, because it's command, it requires obedience. So that's point number one. Very simple. It's our responsibility to obey God when He gives us a command. So now that we know, oh wow, we're accountable for this command, and we're going to be held, and we're going to be judged for this command, and we might receive reward based on this command, or lose reward on the, how much more should we want to understand what it means? Okay, I gotcha. We need to. Be filled with the Spirit, it's a command. But what does it mean? So now we're going to get into the meaning of this word. 
to be filled with the Spirit. Like I said, in the, believe me, I know there are divergent opinions about what this means. That is not a surprise to me. As a matter of fact, I held to a different view of what this means years ago than what I hold to today. And I'm, I believe that my opinion today has been informed by Scripture over time and has fine-tuned my view. So if I give you a view you've never heard before and you're surprised, that doesn't surprise me. Let's go ahead and submit to Scripture, though, on what it, what it says and what it really means. Point number two, the reality of being Spirit-filled, it's all about control. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit or Spirit-filled? Just based on the, the, the word used, to be filled, the Greek word, plerao, that means control or to be controlled by something. An influence that controls you. That's what Paul's talking about. So literally, you could say, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's actually a good translation. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit. It just says Spirit. And in the Greek text, there aren't capital letters. Everything, they don't make a distinction between capital letters and small letters in the Greek language when this was written. So context determines what he's talking about. But the word spirit almost, I think, unanimously all throughout the book of Ephesians is always in reference to the Holy Spirit. And that's the only thing that makes sense here. And if we look at parallel passages, particularly in Galatians 5, this is definitely the Holy Spirit we're talking about. This is not the human spirit. This is not a spirit of inspiration or human motivation or sheer willpower. This is the Spirit of God we're being commanded to be filled by or controlled by. So the reality of being spirit-filled is it's all about control. And that word means to be controlled by another influence, and the other influence we're to be controlled by is the Holy Spirit of God. That's what it's saying. And like I said, some people are controlled by other things, aren't they? Some people are controlled by alcohol, and that was true in Paul's day, and that's why he takes those verses and contrasts them, or those two concepts, and contrasts them with one another. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Rather, be controlled by God's Holy Spirit. So that's what he's talking about, control. This same word, plerao, is used in other Bible verses. I just put one down as an example. John 16, 6, when Jesus told his apostles that he was leaving, they freaked out, they panicked, they got nervous. And he said, it's okay, calm down, be at peace. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to leave the comforter with you. But they were still struggling with that. And it says his disciples or apostles, they were filled with sorrow. They were controlled by sorrow and grief and fear at the fact that Jesus was leaving. So it was a state of mind or something or their emotions that controlled them. So it's the same words. That's what Paul is saying. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let Him dominate your life. Let Him dominate your thinking. Let Him dominate your emotions. As humans, we are susceptible to being controlled by a lot of things, not just alcohol. We can be controlled by our emotions, can't we? Illegitimately. We can be controlled by anger. People who need anger management. Well, first they actually need to repent of their anger sin. That'll help. And as for God's help, we can be controlled by depression. We can be controlled by, controlled by fear, anxiety. There's a lot of things. Lust can control us. Materialism and the pursuit of wealth can control us. That's what it's talking about. Christian, be controlled by God's Holy Spirit. May He be the dominating influence in your life and determining the direction of your life as a Christian. So it's all about control. And, oh, and just, again, with respect to the way the words are being used by Paul, this won't mean anything to most of you. But see that word, be controlled with, or be filled with the Holy Spirit? The word with is a preposition. 
In the Greek text, it's like E-N. It can be translated a lot of different ways, or a few different ways. It can be translated as with. One translation translate, translates it using by. That's legitimate. So be controlled with the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so you've got E-N, the Greek word, N plus the dative equals instrumental sense. What does that mean? Well, that just means that uh, the Holy Spirit is the instrument of controlling us. So it means allow yourself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Or put yourself in a position to be controlled and used by God. Remember, it's our responsibility, right? It was an imperative. We're commanded to do it. So there is some onus on our part. So let's go on to number three. Well, what is the wrong view of being spirit-filled? And what I mean by that is an unbiblical view. I know they're out there. I've heard them. Actually, I believed one for a long time. So let me tell you three things that it doesn't mean to be filled with the Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you a Spirit-filled Christian? That's a common question. That was a common question that I heard at college when I started meeting all these Christians. I went to an un, uh, a Christian college as an unbeliever. And God stuck me with in a dorm room very small with two Christians. Two charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit-filled, four-square Christians, by the way. If that means anything to you. I was an unbeliever, and there were two Christians who were my roommates. Uh, and they were very faithful in praying for my salvation, witnessing to me, sharing the gospel with me. So God used them in my life. Uh, but they were charismatic or Pentecostal. So they had a very specific meaning of what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit that I don't believe today, but that I did believe for years. So letter A, what is it? What doesn't it mean to be filled with the Spirit here according to Paul? Well, letter A, it's not baptism in the Spirit. It is not baptism in the Spirit. And that's a, a recent teaching only taught within the 20th century in the 1900s, really. So it's, it's new. For 1,800 years, the church did not teach that. When uh, Christians throughout the ages read Ephesians 5.18 and Paul said and commanded Christians to be filled with the Spirit, they never thought of spirit baptism as we know it today. That was not on the radar. So this is a, a new idea, a new nuance given to that phrase, baptism in the Spirit. So it's common in charismatic circles, and that's how, you know, the first people that witnessed to me were charismatic Christians that gave me the gospel. They were true believers. Thank God that God used them to give me the gospel. And then I got saved, and for the first two years I ended up primarily in charismatic churches. Um, and so it was very common. I was asked, oh, you're a Christian? Praise the Lord. Well, have you been baptized in the Spirit? And I was like, well, what does that mean? So I didn't understand what that meant for many years. You're a Christian, and the next question was, but have you been baptized in the Spirit? And what that meant was that there was a second level of Christianity to be attained. First, there's salvation, and then the next step, or the higher level, is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was a higher level of spirituality. So when I first heard of that, I thought, oh, bummer, I thought I got everything when I became a Christian and received Jesus. I'm missing out. So then I began to hunger for this higher level of Christianity called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, all that, all they meant by that, have you been baptized, you've been, you're saved, that's good, but have you been baptized in the Spirit? What that meant was at some point in your Christian life, you had to cry out, not to Jesus, but to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you in a new, unique way you've never experienced before and uh, somehow amazingly empowers you in, in a new way that you've never been empowered before and then you would have new abilities you never had before and primarily your new abilities would be able to do spiritual gifts. And the main one was speaking in tongues. That's what they would say. Have you been filled with the Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues? And so that's what I was taught. And at some point I just like, yeah, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want everything God has to offer, everything that the Bible teaches. So 
when I was going to these churches. They taught me that. Eventually, I believed in it. And then I asked the Holy Spirit to come into my life and fill me with the Spirit and give me the evidence by speaking in tongues. And I thought I received the gift of speaking in tongues, and it was something that I practiced because I was told to practice it. And just so you know, what is speaking in tongues? Uh, the New Testament talks about speaking in tongues. Paul talks about speaking in tongues. The Apostle Paul spoke in tongues. It was a legitimate gift that was given by God. The Greek word for tongues is glossolalia, which means language, an understandable spoken language. That's what it always means. That's why when you refer to a glossary, glossolalia, glossary, glossary means words. Words that can be articulated, words that we can comprehend, words that can be defined, words that we understand. There's meaning to those words when we hear them. So that was the, the word that Paul used when he said speaking in tongues was a spiritual gift. It was a supernatural, divine language that a Christian would be given instantaneously with the ability to speak a different language they had never learned before. So it was an amazing gift. The Apostle Paul had that gift. Uh, some Corinthian Christians had that gift and they were abusing and misusing that gift, so he had to correct them. He never told the Corinthians to stop speaking in tongues. He said, you need to have some self-control and do it the right way. And he also explained some of the meaning regarding it. But anyway, today that's been totally taught in a different way. And they, th they say that baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens later on in your Christian life. And the evidence is that you will speak in tongues. And what they mean by that is not you're not going to speak a new language that's legitimate that can be interpreted by other people listening uh, the definition they give today is this speaking in tongues is actually just mumbo mumbling or mumbo jumbo. It's, they're not human words at all. And so that's what I was taught. So I did that for a while. And I was told I need to practice this at home. Uh, and Jack Hayford, he's a pastor down in Southern California, and to demonstrate on the radio and other times, he speaks in tongues. Uh, he's a he's a man of God, but when he talks about this, he kind of makes fun of it because he you know he realizes that some people think charismatic Christians are weird, and so he's proud of that, and he's a charismatic, and he speaks in tongues. And to demonstrate to people who've never heard it before, he said, "Well, speaking in tongues is kind of like just making noise, and the Holy Spirit takes control of your tongue. It sounds kind of like this: Bada Mazda, shoulda bada Honda, Bada Mazda, shoulda bada Honda, Bada Mazda, shoulda bada Honda, bought a Mazda in this car." Should have bought a Honda. It's a better car. Well, anyway, uh, he's charismatic. He speaks. That was his joke. So I'm not hurting his feelings. But it's a good illustration. So this idea that uh, being baptized in the Spirit is synonymous with speaking in tongues just is not true. Okay. There is one verse that talks about being baptized in the Spirit, and that is in 1 Corinthians 12:13. And that just all it says is that when you became the moment you became a Christian, supernaturally, invisibly, God added you to the body of Christ, and he did it through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And all that meant was that God added you to the church. He added you to the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ. In local assemblies, universally, every Christian who has ever lived, you became a part of that body through the means and agency of the Holy Spirit of God. It was a supernatural transaction. You probably don't even realize it happened at the time. Kind of like you don't remember being born when you were born. Same thing. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it happens to every Christian, not just some. Because that's the teaching today that we are told from the charismatic position is some Christians might be spirit-filled or have the ability and others probably aren't. Whereas baptism in the Spirit happens to every Christian at the moment of salvation. Another distinction there, baptism of the Holy Spirit only happens one time. It's a one-time historical event that God does, not you. It happens at salvation. That's what Paul says. That's the whole argument in 1 Corinthians 12, 30, uh, 13. So that's what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Also, B, 
Being Spirit-filled is not the same thing. It's not indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living or residing in them. If you're a Christian this morning or afternoon, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And He took up residence in your heart the moment you became a Christian, whether you were 6, 16, or 60. The moment you put faith in Christ and were born again, God's wedding present to you is the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will remain in you, will never leave you until you die or until Jesus returns for us. That is a promise. You cannot lose the Holy Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, 11, Paul simply says, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you are a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, you are not a Christian. Hebrews 13, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. I don't understand Christians who say they can lose their salvation or they can lose the Holy Spirit. That is not the teaching of the New Testament. When you were saved, God gave you eternal life. Eternal life lasts for eternity, which goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's very basic. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose the Holy Spirit. So every Christian is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that's why, since every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in you, actually it's Jesus who lives in you. So there's a question for you. Who lives in me? Jesus or the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. Okay, then who lives in me? Is it Jesus or the Father? Yes. Well, is it Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Father? Yes. You mean the, Holy, you mean the Father lives in me too? That's what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. Jesus said that. That's a promise. John 14, 16, 17. So a Christian has the presence of Jesus Christ and God the Father of the universe living in them through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Well, how does that work? I don't know. It's a miracle. I cannot explain it. I take it by faith. That's what the Bible says. So we have the Trinity living in us through the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. It's an awesome thing. So if every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them, you know what? You are taking God with you wherever you go. In the Old Testament, they carried around the tabernacle whenever they moved around, right? And what was inside that little tent building? The very Spirit and presence of God was inside that tabernacle. And if you went in to the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was and you were not a high priest and you were not a clean high priest and you weren't doing it on the right day of the year, you would be dead instantaneously. Because you don't enter into the presence of God flippantly. So they carried around in that tabernacle and then eventually they built a permanent building called the temple and God's presence literally filled that building. And in the New Testament, every Christian is a temple of God, which means every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them. So wherever you go, you have the Spirit of God with you. So when we obey, God is there. When we sin, God is there. That's why the Bible says, and we just read this in Ephesians 4, there are times where Christians sin and we grieve the Holy Spirit. That means we inhibit and stifle the Holy Spirit who is inside of us. Prompting us to do the right thing and to obey. We grieve Him. We stifle Him. We thwart His work in our life. That's indwelling. Go on to number three. What else is being Spirit-filled not? Letter C, we talked about this already. Speaking in tongues. Being filled with the Spirit is not synonymous with speaking in tongues. Again, speaking in tongues was a legitimate spiritual gift. By the way, not that I asked for but many times in Scripture, it always says that this, the gifts are distributed as He wills, as God determines, as the Holy Spirit wills. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 
12, 13, 14. God is the one who gives the gifts. We don't just get to pick and choose. Oh, I would like this one and that. We have nothing to do with it. It's a gift from God. They're spiritual gifts. God gives them to us at his sovereign decree and pleasure. That's why when I was in the charismatic churches early on, I had all these charismatic Christians telling me, oh, you need to speak in tongues, you need to speak in tongues, you need to reach the higher level, you need to speak in tongues, you need to get that gift, you need to go get that gift, you need to ask for that gift. Okay. Then later on I realized, no, 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 no. God gives the gifts as He discerns and decrees. It is His will. What are the gifts for anyway? Pleasing ourselves, Showing off? No. That, that was the Corinthians problem. Your spiritual gift is for serving others and building the church, edifying other people. It's not all about you. It's about everybody else and Christ and His church. So we have to have the right perspective about the gifts and particularly about tongues because there was so much confusion on it. And also when I was in these churches, that, that was the emphasis. I mean, as far as I was hearing and understanding, I believed that speaking in tongues was the most important gift of all. That's the main one. You have got to have that. And sometimes other gifts weren't even mentioned or talked about hardly ever or appreciated or considered desirable. The ironic thing is in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, as Paul is talking about all these spiritual gifts, he says in terms of the hierarchy of importance in the corporate body, guess where he puts speaking in tongues? Dead last. Serving is more important than speaking in tongues, the gift of service and helps. Did you know that? Oh, well, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound fun. You mean grunt work? Giving. Faith. Gifts that take priority over the gift of tongues in Paul's list. Giving? I have the gift of receiving. I don't want the gift of giving. <laughs> Just tell you what Paul says. By the way, so, you know, for the last couple of decades, uh, you know, tongues has totally been blown out of proportion, given way too much uh, influence and priority in the church. Totally illegitimate. Just look at the Bible. I mean, I was being told the most important spiritual gift is tongues. And if you really want to be a spirit-filled, obedient Christian who honors God, then you've got to speak in tongues. I'm thinking, well, I read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I never saw anything about tongues. Jesus never talked about tongues. Never. Out of 27 books in the New Testament, only two even mentioned tongues. Six, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, tongues is never exemplified by a believer. Ever. So two out of 64 books in the entire Bible have references to tongues. And those are few and somewhat cryptic at that. So it wasn't a priority in the Bible as I read it. The way it was being made a priority in my mind. And by the way, um, when I said that, oh, it's also called a prayer language. And what they mean by that is when you become a Christian and you... Get filled with the Spirit. You'll receive evidence by speaking in tongues. And then that ability to speak in tongues and kind of mumble in the Jack Hayford style, it becomes your private prayer language. It's something you don't do it out in public. You do it in a closet where nobody's around. That's what I was told to do. Go home and practice this in your bathroom seven days a week for 15 minutes a day. That's what I was told and taught to do. So it's your private prayer language, which goes against what Paul says. The gift of tongues is for edifying other saints. They need to hear it. It needs to be interpreted. And then it becomes prophetic. It's not a private prayer language. I don't need speaking in tongues to pray because two times Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, didn't he? And then in Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, I will teach you as believers how to pray. This is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was in simple language. That's how we pray. John, uh, Matthew 6 and Luke 11 are models of prayer. 
So when we want to learn to pray as a Christian, that is our model. Jesus was the master of teaching us how to pray. And he didn't say, you know, he didn't mean memorize this prayer, mimic this prayer word for word all the time. He was just simply laying out a model. Our Father. He was just saying, the priority when you go to prayer, it's all about God. It is your relation with Him as Father. And you have personal conversation with the Father who saved your soul. So there are just elements of prayer that Jesus outlined for us. That's how we pray. We don't need speaking in tongues to pray. Jesus already taught us how to pray. And by the way, there are gazillions of prayers in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation by all the saints of all the ages. And every single one of those prayers is in intelligible language that can be understood. Simple conversation. So very important. So let's go on to number four. Uh, so that's what being spirit-filled is not. Number four, the resources for being filled or spirit-filled. What are the resources for being spirit-filled? Well, it's our riches in Christ. You can be spirit-filled by virtue of your of your riches in Christ. That's all. That's what Paul's been talking about in Ephesians, particularly chapters one through three. And Paul was saying, if you've been redeemed, if you've been saved by Christ, then you have inherited great insurmountable riches in Jesus Christ. When God the Father looks down from heaven on a believer, he sees Jesus Christ. Literally, in terms of your position before God. All of your sins have been forgiven. All the inheritance that belongs to Christ belongs to the believer. Everything is at our disposal. Our riches in Christ, that's what Ephesians is all about. The reason this is important is because this command in Ephesians 5.18, play ra'o, that verb, it's an imperative, which means it's a command. But it's also in the passive voice. I mean, it means that there's something there that we cannot do ourselves. Active, I do it myself. Passive, there's something, there's an element I don't do myself. What is it we can't do ourselves? Well, we can't, basically, we don't have the resources within ourselves to be spirit filled according to what the Bible says how to be spirit filled. We are dependent upon God for those resources to become spirit filled. Well, what are those resources? And that's by virtue of the fact that it's in passive voice. We don't have our own resources. I can do nothing apart from Christ, but in Christ I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, right? Well, what do we need? So I put down three things that are our resources that God gave to us by virtue of our salvation in Christ that enable us to live a Spirit-filled life. What are they? Well, the first one, letter A there, is we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I've already talked about that. Every Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit Within them, so they have resident supernatural power to fulfill and obey this command. Acts 1.8, look at it, powerful verse. This was just before Jesus started the church. He rose from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. In 40 days, he's going to start his church on the day of Pentecost. Before he does that, he tells his apostles, wait, be patient, don't start yet. The church hasn't started yet. And don't start yet because you don't have the strength to carry it out. You need the power source. What's the power source? That's Acts 1.8. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus said to his apostles, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority regarding what is yet to come in God's plan. Verse 8, But you, Christian, you, apostle, you will receive power, dunamis, power, supernatural power. When? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you to live in you. The Gospel of John is clear. Jesus said, The Holy Spirit has been with you up to this point, but then he shall be in you. So the apostles didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them yet. So Jesus said, wait, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will be in you. He will empower you. And then when that happens, then you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. That is our power source, the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. 
Uh, Galatians 5.16. Look at that because it's a parallel passage. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I think a synonymous phrase that explains it well, that Paul uses, is in Galatians 5. Galatians 5.16. He says, But I say to you, Christian, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Holy Spirit. That's a definition of what it means to be Spirit-filled. Be filled with the Holy Spirit means to walk by the Spirit. Now, we've heard that repeatedly in the book of Ephesians, haven't we? Paul keeps saying, walk, walk, walk. Well, how do we walk successfully? How do we live the Christian life successfully? Well, we do it by the Spirit, in the energy of the Spirit, with the power of the Spirit who lives inside of you. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, I say to you, walk by the Holy Spirit, and if you do, you will not carry out the desire or the lust of the flesh that still lives in the Christian. Do Christians still have sin living within them? Yes. Are Christians susceptible to all kinds of horrible sins? Yes. Do they have lust living within them? Yes. We need to resist that and walk by the Spirit in obedience to the Spirit, energized by the Holy Spirit. So those are two synonymous phrases. That's a great inspired definition of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. But it's by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's our resource. What's another resource? B, the ongoing intake of the Word of God. This is amazing and profound. Flip to Colossians chapter 3. If you didn't know it, several chapters in Colossians parallel Ephesians, almost identically. The content of the chapter, the order that they are addressed, even specific words and phrases that are used, it's amazing. Keep your finger in Ephesians 5 and your finger in Colossians 3 and just look at some of the parallels. In Colossians 3, uh, he talks about being in Christ in Colossians. He said that over 20 times in Ephesians, being in Christ. He says he used to be dead. He said that in Ephesians as well. He says, stay away from these sins in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. Some of those sins are the exact same sins he enumerated in the book of Ephesians already. Watch how you use your mouth. Verse 8 of Colossians. Colossians 3, 8. He said that in Ephesians. Colossians 3.9, don't lie. He said that in Ephesians. Put on the new self. He said that in Ephesians. Uh, look at verse 12. Chosen of God and holy. said that in Ephesians. Put on these. Kindness, humility, gentleness. He said that in Ephesians. Verse 12. How you should relate to other believers. He says that. Verse 14, he talks about unity. He said that in Ephesians. And then look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And literally, it's let the Word of Christ be at home in your heart. Let the Word of God be at home in your heart. Let the Word of God be welcomed in your soul. How do you do that? By reading it, meditating on it, hearing it, listening to it, reading the Word of God. Take it in. Take in the Word of Christ or the Word of God. Let it be at home in your heart. Be filled with God's truth through Scripture is what he's saying. And then the results in Colossians 3.16, if you let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, then there will be byproduct or fruit. What is that? Verse 16. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Do you know that if you are taking in the word of God on a regular basis, in a healthy way, good things are going to happen in your life? Some of those good things are that blessings are just going to cry out from within your soul and it is going to be worship of God, worship through song, worship through giving Him praise, worship through giving Him thanksgiving according to this, worship through different kinds of songs, which Paul calls psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's going to be the byproduct of taking in the Word of God on a regular basis. Go back to Ephesians 5.18. 
And look what Paul says. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Speaking to one another. Admonishing one another. That is the exact same phrase we just read in Colossians. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, controlled by the Spirit of God, some good things are going to happen in your life. What are they, Paul? Ephesians 5.19. Speaking to one another. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the exact same phraseology he just said in Colossians. It's the byproduct of taking in the Word of God. It's the same thing. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to take the Word of God and let it be in your life and in your heart and in your mind, meditating on it, doing it, employing it, practicing it. Because the fruits and the byproducts are the same. And he goes on. Songs, uh, uh, hymns, spiritual songs, and singing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody in your heart towards God. Verse 20, giving thanks. Uh, And then he goes on in Ephesians and he talks about wives, you need to do this. Husbands, you need to do this. Uh, Children, you need to do this. Parents, you need to do this. Masters, you need to do this. Employees, you need to do this. And then in Colossians, after that exhortation in 3.16, he says the same thing. Wives, you need to do this. Husbands, do this. Children, do this. Parents, do this. Slaves, do this. Employees, do this. It's the exact same thing. They're totally parallel. And the key to doing all of those successfully in a way that pleases God is to be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? To let the Word of Christ richly indwell you. You come to know what it means and then you apply it to your life and you submit to the truth of the Word of God. And then when you do that, then the Holy Spirit can use you and He can control you. We have to be made controllable. That's our responsibility. And once we are controllable by filling ourselves with the Word of God and His truth and submitting to it, then God will control us with the Holy Spirit. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's the promise of of James. There's an onus on our part. We need to initiate something. So go back to Ephesians. So the ongoing intake of the Word of God is absolutely important. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit and then letter C. Oh, these, those other verses I just wrote out for you talk about how important it is to meditate on the Word of God, take in the Word of God, even memorize the Word of God. I know that's a dirty word for some of you, memorize the Word of God, but that's what the Bible says. It'll change your life. And another resource we have, letter C, is fervent, regular, dynamic, biblical prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says, pray in the Spirit all times. So those are our resources. Let's go on to number five. The regularity of being filled, Spirit-filled. It's an ongoing pursuit. It's an ongoing pursuit. I get that just by simply this verb is present tense. It's an ongoing, regular, continual pursuit in our life. And at any given moment, any Christian could either be filled with the Spirit or not filled with the Spirit, depending upon whether you're being obedient or not. So it's an ongoing process. It's something we pursue all of our days. And at any given moment, I might be filled with the Spirit or right now I might be in sin uh, with an anger problem. Then I'm not filled with the Spirit. Then I need to confess my sin, repent, and ask God to forgive me and control me again. So it's day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's with regularity. It's ongoing. And it... It's, you can't just say, oh, I've, I've been filled with the Spirit that happened five years ago when I made a decision. No. It's not a one-time event. It's ongoing. It's continual. It's present tense. We have to pursue it constantly in our life. Very important. And then number six, what are the results of being filled with the Spirit or having a Spirit-filled life? And it's simply, a, it's, you'll have a fruitful life. That's what God says in a good way. Um, go to Galatians 5.22. We'll close with this. Because like I said... A synonym for being filled with the Spirit is walking in the Spirit. And Paul said, we already read this, Galatians 5.16, that if you walk in the Spirit, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, 
being filled with the Word of God, submitting to the truth of the Word of God, making yourself available to God, drawing near to Him so that He might draw near to you, Paul says there will be evidence of fruit in your life, and he lists what those are. He tells you what the bad things are. At any given moment, any Christian can take their life and examine it and scrutinize it and look for all these attributes. Am I in the flesh or am I in the spirit right now? Oh, I'm really angry and mad right now in an illegitimate way. Oh, that's on the dirty list. I need to confess my sin. I'm not filled with the spirit. But here's the good fruit in your life, verse 22. Galatians 5:22. If you are filled with the spirit, you will manifest the following, the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit that will be manifest in our attitudes, in our actions, and in our words when we put ourselves in a position to be used by God's Spirit so that we might have a Spirit-filled life. Well, with that, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to keep teaching us to enlighten us as to how we can be specifically spirit-filled in our lives in light of our weaknesses and sin so that we can be used for His glory and produce fruit in our life. Father, we do thank You for today. We thank You for this opportunity to worship You, to study Your Word together. Thank You for every person that You brought here. Thank You for our visitors today. God, through the Holy Spirit, show us how we can be living in obedience to You Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness so that we will have the desire to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to hear it taught, to apply it to our life so that we can be controlled by your Holy Spirit so that we will glorify you and resist sin. So we just pray that you go before us in a special way as we commit this day to you in Christ's name. Amen.